0: Good morning, folks. All right. Hey, glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, why don't you grab them at this point in time? And let's turn uh, for one final time to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai. Again, if you're using your pew Bible, it's page 769, third to the last book in your Old Testament. The book of Haggai, chapter 2, is where we are going to be as we close out our sermon series in the book of Haggai putting God first. Today in part four, we will see God promise his people a prosperous present and a prevailing future. A prosperous present and a prevailing future. Again, Haggai chapter 2, and we will be looking in verse 10. I trust that you're there, close to it. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. pray that you would be well pleased by uh, all that we do today, that our uh, hearing of the word, that our receiving of your word, that uh, our worship will be well-pleasing to you. Father, give us grace to hear and to do. Father, encourage us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. So, a fable is told, and as fables go, they uh, are interesting. And this fable is told about the day that the devil was going out of business. What a great day that would be. The day that the devil was going out of business and he decided to have a sale. He decided to have a sale of all of his favorite tools. Well, on the night of the sale, the tools were attractively displayed. Of course, you had the ones that everybody expected, malice and hatred, envy and jealousy, of course, sensuality, deceit, and uh, microphones that don't work, all all the tools that the, the devil uses, right? And they were all spread out nicely and each was marked with its price. Now, apart from those tools, lay one harmless looking, wedge shaped, very common tool. It was much worn. You could see that it had been used a lot. And the price was higher than any of the other tools. Well, one in- inquiring man asked the devil what tool that was. And he said, Well, that's discouragement, was the reply. The man asked, Well, why do you have it? priced so high. Because, said the devil, it's more useful to me than any of the others. I can pry open a man's heart, and once inside, I can use him in whatever way suits me best. It is so worn, you see, because I use it with nearly everyone. And so very, very few people know that it yet belongs to me. You know, discouragement is one of the devil's most dangerous tools indeed. So the question before us today is how did God encourage a discouraged and downtrodden people in order to motivate them to persevere in their obedience to him? You may recall last week from Haggai chapter 2 that God encouraged his newly obedient people to rebuild the temple, and he did so by promising them his presence his providential protection, and his promises. Well, as we wrap up our sermon series in Haggai's cha- Haggai chapter 2, God will continue to encourage his people, his discouraged people, by promising them a couple things. First, he's going to promise them a prosperous present, and we'll see that in verses 10 through 19. And then he will encourage them by promising a prevailing future. And that is found in verses 20 through 23. A prosperous present and a prevailing future. Well, let's take a look in verse 10, where we see God encourage his discouraged people with a promise of a prosperous present. Haggai's second message of encouragement, remember we saw one last week, came just two months after his first message of encouragement. We'll see in verse 10, the day was the 24th of the ninth month, which in the Jewish calendar was the month of Kislev. But for us, it is the month of December, specifically December 18th in the year of 520 BC. A very good date. It's my anniversary. So here is the message that the Lord gave starting in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. The message that follows in verses 11 through 19 is essentially uh, spelled out for us in two parts. So in the first half of this message, found in verses 11 through 14, God uses an illustration. He's going to use a picture to convey a truth. Now, that illustration is from the Old Testament law, specifically the Old Testament law regarding that which was ritually uh, considered pure, and then that which was considered ceremonially impure or, or, or defiled. And the point that he's going to make is that before the people of God began to obey him, remember, 16 years they were in disobedience. They had refused to rebuild the temple. God is going to say that during that period of time, their misplaced priorities had rendered them spiritually defiled in the Lord's sight. And not only that, but their deeds and their offerings were also unacceptable to him. Well, moving on in verses 15 through 19, God then applies that illustration. He gives the illustration and then he makes the point. And he's going to remind them that the consequences of their sins are going to come to an end. And he's going to give them a promise of renewed blessing. The promise of a prosperous present. Well, let's take a look as we begin the illustration starting in verse 11 and running through verse 14. Um, I, those of you who have, 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 have had kids, you understand what I'm about to say. And even if you haven't, you can probably understand the point. When we uh, had our firstborn child, uh, Asher, he's now seven. When he was firstborn, uh, we were very particular about everything, right? Newborn parents, we'd never done it before. We wanted to make sure that he was healthy. And so um, we would, of course, give him pacifiers. And when that pacifier fell on the floor, what do you think we did? We washed it immediately, right? No five-second rule applies. We'd scoop it up, and we'd, you know, put water and and soap. And if it, you know, fell on a particularly dirty uh, place, you know what we'd do? We'd boil it in water, right? We wanted to make sure that this passy was good and clean, right? It had to be clean. It couldn't be dirty for our firstborn child, only the best, right? Um, Then came number two and number three. And now we have number four, and he's just over a year old and he still uses pacifiers. What do you think happens when the pacifier falls out of the mouth of number four? You think we run to scoop it up and, and spray it with oil and boil it in water? No, not at all. In fact, most of the time I just pick it up and a like, five second rule, here you go, kid, right? Back in the mouth, be quiet just to illustrate this point and 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 this is to my shame but uh the other day we were in our uh our garage and we keep our trash can inside our garage and i was holding dever and something happened he dropped the pacifier and it kind of it's those round ones so they roll i hate those things the round ones and so it rolled over to where the trash can is and uh, as you well know where you keep a trash can it's generally just yucky and gross on the bottom right just kind of around the trash can and so it it rolled over into that area a a genuinely gross disgusting area on the floor what do you think i did i picked it up and i was about to stick it back in his mouth and my wife said that's been near the trash can i said okay so i stuck it in my own mouth i said there it's good and i plugged him back up (laughs) confession confession time That's just the truth of the matter. So, (laughs) here's the point. We kind of have our own idea as to what we consider things to be clean or things to be unclean when they touch a particular object, right? Well, this is the illustration that the Lord is going to use. He is going to talk about what, according to Israel's law, was deemed unclean when it came into contact with something the Lord considered unclean. And then what is clean? That's the kind of illustration he's going to use. That is, what would make a person or an object ceremonially clean or defiled before the Lord? So, the message begins in verse 11, and Haggai asks the priests who determine these things two questions. The first question in verses 11 and 12 dealt with the transfer of ritual holiness. Let's take a look at verse 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other foods, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, no. So with the initial question, the Lord is making a simple point. Ritual cleanliness could not be transferred. That was how it worked in the law. But then he asks a second question. The second question dealt with the transfer of ritual defilement. Notice verse 13. Then Haggai said, kind of the opposite question, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, right, the the wine or the bread or the stew, if it touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Kind of the opposite question. Yes, the priests replied, it becomes defiled. See, in contrast uh, to ritual purity in Israel's law, ritual defilement, which was caused by contact, really with a whole host of items, it was transferable. So here's the simple point, right? This is what it boils down to. God's simple point was that ceremonial cleanliness could not be transferred, but ceremonial defilement could. He's going to make his point and apply it starting in verse 14. He makes his point from the law and then he relates that truth to the people's prior state. He says, this is what you were like, O Israel, before you started to obey me. Notice verse 14. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people in this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. It's like God was saying to them, you were just like that person who touched the dead body before me. Before you began to obey me, you were defiled morally and you were defiled spiritually. And not only that, but your defilement had transferred, this is the point, your defilement had transferred. It affected everything you did before you started to obey. It touched your work and it touched your worship. So he uses this illustration, and he's making the simple point. Before you started to obey me, things weren't going well. You were spiritually defiled because you were in rebellion against me, and it touched every area of your life, your worship and your work. Next, in verses 15 through 19, we see this illustration applied. So if the people needed evidence, right, if they needed evidence of this reality, they only needed to remember The covenant consequences that they had faced for the past 16 years. Because life we've seen in this book was not good for them during that 16-year period of disobedience. In fact, three times in these verses, God implores them. In fact, when we read it, take note. Three times he is going to implore them, saying, give careful thought. Think about it. Give careful thought, to the discipline that you endured from my hand as disobedient children. So he's going to reiterate, what was life like? What were the consequences of your sin? But there's a silver lining. There's a really good silver lining. Because not only does he say, think about what life used to be like, but he's going to point, point them to a future day, which was coming soon when God would reverse course and pour out his covenant blessings upon them. Three times he says this little phrase, from this day, that is that day, right? December 18th, 520. He's going to say, from this day on, I'm going to bless you. But he doesn't do it immediately. In fact, it's interesting. In verse 15, he says, from this day on. But then he doesn't reveal the blessings to come. In verse 18, he says, from this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month. But then again, he doesn't reveal the coming blessings. Only till the very end of the section does he kind of make his point. He says, from this day on, I will bless you. So this is what God does in this section. He says, remember the covenant cursings. Remember what it was like when you were disobedient and how bad it was. It's all going to change from this day on. From here on out and into the future, I'm going to pour out my blessings upon you. But he does it in a way that he starts his thought from this day on. Remember how bad it was? From this day on, remember how bad it was? From this day on, I will bless you. It's kind of like uh, what my kids do. It's just a kid's illustration kind of day. Uh, it's very, very, very common in my household for one of my children to say, Dad, and I'll say, What? And they'll look at me, because they're doing something. And I'll say, Dad, what? And they'll kind of fiddle. Hey, Dad, what? Speak to me, right? Hey, Dad, I need a drink of, of water, right? They, they start their thought, but then they don't finish it. They start their thought, but then they don't finish it. They start their thought, and then they finally come back and finish it. That's, that's exactly what God is going to do in this section. Let's read it together, starting in verse 15. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple, right? Consider what it was like before you began to rebuild. Verse 16. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. And he finally gets to the promise of a, a prosperous present. From this day on, I will bless you. In essence, God is saying, it's been really bad for you because you've been really bad. But now that you've turned from your sin, you've started to rebuild the temple, things are going to change. So a couple of things that I find really fascinating about this passage. Number one, it's important for us to see that there had been three months since they began to obey. Three months they had been obedient to the Lord. They had been rebuilding the temple. So they had been pursuing obedience to God for three months. But God had not yet begun to give them the promised covenant blessings in response three months it took for the Lord to pour out his blessings. But not only that, but the consequences of their 16 years of rebellion still had to run its course, right? So for an additional three months, the Lord waited. I think he waited to see if their obedience would last. Would they continue to obey even in the face of opposition before the promised blessings would come? So in this This third message, we see God encourage his people with a promise of a prosperous present. And I see three points for you and I as we begin to move from that century to this one, from that millennia, really, to this one. Three points to ponder from this message in Haggai. The first one is simply this. Obedience leads to blessings. Obedience leads to blessings. That's so very clear in this text. What is true for God's people in the past is true for God's people in the past. In the present, obedience still leads to blessings. But there has been an important shift, an important change in covenants. Because as we move into the New Testament, what we begin to see is that the blessings promised under the new covenant initiated by Christ, which we will remember here in a few minutes through communion, are very different than those that the Lord promised his old covenant people, Israel. As we move into the new covenant instituted by Christ, we see that the church is a spiritual entity. Unlike Israel, not tied to land or location. And that's why we see that the nature of the blessings that God promises us when we obey are primarily spiritual in nature. I'm sure you've read through the book of Ephesians before. Paul opens up this book by talking about the innumerable spiritual blessings that God has richly poured out upon us who are Christians. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And if you read through that first chapter, he goes on to enumerate what some of our spiritual blessings are. I'll just run through them rather quickly. Number one, he chose us to be holy And to be blameless before him. He chose us to be adopted as his children. As his sons and daughters. He redeemed us from sin. He forgave us from our sins. He lavished his grace upon us. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. That we understand the gospel. Paul goes on to say that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Until the day of our redemption and salvation. And and friends that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Right? Paul could go on and on on. Now, this is not to say, it's not to say that God doesn't bless us ever physically or financially when we obey. I think he does. I think he often does. But I don't see in the New Testament that he promises that to you and I as believers in the similar way that he did to Israel. You know what another interesting study is, and I did it really quickly uh, this week. Go through Uh, Look at at BibleGateway.org. Maybe you have some Bible software. Look in the New Testament and uh, look up the word bless or blessings, something to that effect in the New Testament, and you will discover uh, the type of blessings that are promised to Christians in the New Testament. There are all sorts of different things. Let me just list a few. Number one, Christians are promised the blessing of inheriting the kingdom of God. We're promised comfort in mourning. We are promised the righteousness of God mercy for our sins. We're promised to see God. We have the blessing of having insight into his word. We have the blessing of being turned away from our wickedness, the blessings of forgiveness of sins, eternal life, having the spirit of God rest upon us, heaven, and so much more. It's fascinating when you look at the blessings promised to us in the New Testament, over and over and over again, we see that they are spiritual in nature. And so here is where the rubber meets the road. I'm going to ask myself a different, difficult question and ask you maybe a difficult question. Which blessings sound better to you? Those that God promised his old covenant people or those that God promised his new covenant people, the church? Which are more attractive to you? Which do you really want more from God? If it's the physical blessings or the financial blessings that we really want from God, and if we want more, those more than the ones that he actually promises us as Christians, what does that say about us? What does it say about our priorities, about our passions? See, friends, just as God encouraged a newly obedient people with the promise of, a, uh, of blessings, of a prosperous presence, so God does too with his new covenant people. But those blessings look dramatically different than what they did under the old covenant. Yes, obedience leads to blessings. But there's a second principle, a second point. God may, God may wait for sustained obedience before blessings come. So let me ask a question from this text. Why did God wait three months to give his newly obedient people the promised covenant blessings from obedience? Why did he wait? Why did he not pour out his promised covenant blessings the day that they put the the very first stone on the temple foundation, right? The day they started working, why did he not then pour out his covenant blessings? Well, we don't really know. The Bible doesn't say. But I think it's very reasonable to conclude that God was waiting to see if they would endure in their newfound obedience. Remember, they had started once before and they had stopped when things got difficult. Friends, I believe God does the same for you and I. He may do the same for you and I. When we turn from a a particular sin or struggle in our own hearts and our own lives with repentance, we begin to start pursuing obedience. God may also wait to pour out blessings upon us. Just as we've talked about, God does promise us a whole host of spiritual blessings for his obedient children in the church. But just as he did with these Jews, he may wait. He may just wait for our sustained obedience before sending those blessings our way. He may want to see if we will continue to obey him. When I was 16 years old, I got my driver's license from the state of Texas, and I still have it. If you want to see what a 16-year-old tray looks like, don't ask me, because I'm not going to share with you. But um, I have that driver's license, and uh, I began to drive, and uh, I drove my dad's truck he had a truck that he would take to work and it was the company's and then he had his own uh, three-ton Chevy pickup truck and that was my first car, so to speak. And I would drive it to school and to sporting events and all that jazz. Um, and my dad was uh, very gracious. Um, he didn't make me pay for my gas, at least not initially. So what he did was he got me this little Chevron gas card or whatever, whatever company it was. And he said, Trey, whenever you need gas, you go to the gas pump, in and out, right? And uh, there you go sounds great to a 16-year-old kid, right? And so uh, I was kind of doing that. And so the day came when I was filling up gas with my friend. And uh, my friend had his car, I had mine, and he said, hey man, I don't have any cash, but I need a little bit of gas. Do you think that you could, you know, just swipe that card thingy and fill up my tank? I'm a generous guy. I I like my friends. And so I said, sure, why not, right? So I go, boom, boom, and I fill up my tank, and I go, boom, boom, and I fill up his tank. And I thought, eh, it's not going to hurt anything, right? Uh, a few weeks pass. The same scenario comes. Hey, Trey, I'm short of gas. Can you? Okay, one more time. Boom, 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 boom. I think this happened uh, about three times. And uh, about a few weeks later, my dad said, Trey, we need to talk. I said, okay, what do we need to talk about? He said, well, you know, that gas card you gave, uh, I gave you, yeah. Um, I've noticed that you filled up twice at the same location on the same day what happened? And I said, well, and I, and I was truthful. I said, this is what happened. My friend needed gas. I wanted to help him. So and he said, what about the second time? Same thing. What about the third time? Same thing. And uh, he was very gracious with me. He said, Trey, um, you have a good heart. You, want to, you love your friends. That's good. But don't pay for the gas anymore, okay? That's that, that credit card is for you and for you alone. So I thought he was going to take the card away from me. Well, he did in a sense. He said, you can still have the card, uh, but when you pay for that, I'm going to send you the bill. And so from that point on, I started fitting the bill. And he said, you know what? When you can prove to me that you can handle this, that you can be obedient to what I desire, then I'll start paying for your gas again. And it took a a matter of several months before he started to to pay for that gas. And the, the point of the illustration is simply this. That's what God was doing with his people He was saying, I'm going to wait to see if you will pursue consistent obedience to me, and then I will pour out my blessings upon you. But there's a third point, a third application, and it's also maybe a challenging one. Consequences of sinful choices often remain, even after repentance occurs. I think we see this very clearly from this text. God's people had been disobedient for 16 years. Finally, they changed course. They began to obey the Lord. And the first month came, and they were still suffering consequences from their sin. And the second month came, and they were still suffering consequences from their sin. And the third month came, and still they were doing that until that December 18th day, when the Lord says, now I know you'll obey me. Now I know you'll obey me. Because consequences of sinful choices often, often remain even after repentance occurs. So I don't know if you've ever experienced this in your life. I know that I have time and time again. So your marriage may still need to be nurtured, and it may still need some healing, even after you say, I'm sorry, and you begin to make some life changes. You might still flunk that course, even though you began to work hard after failing that midterm. You, You might still flunk the course you still might have to clean up your room or go without your phone, youth and children, even after you made right with your parents and you began to obey them. You still might have physical or mental side effects from very foolish choices that you made as a, as a, as a youth, as a teenager or, or a young adult. Because sometimes the consequences of sinful choices still remain, even after we turn course, even after we pursue obedience. But the wonderful truth that we see here is that when we pursue repentance and obedience, that blessings will overlap those consequences, often softening their effects. So, in this third message, the Lord encourages his people with a promise of a prosperous present. There's one final message in the book of Haggai, and it's the promise not of a prosperous present, but the promise of a prevailing future. In verses 20 through 23. This fourth and final message in the book of Haggai comes on the same date, December 18th. And this time, it's given specifically to one man, right? All of the other messages have been to political or spiritual leaders or the, 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 the Israelites as a whole, but this message is for one man, the governor Zerubbabel. It's a prophetic message, and I believe it's still awaiting fulfillment. Let's take a look at verse 20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. So it begins in verse 21. In verse 21, we see a reiteration of what we saw last week in verse 6, that God predicts a future overthrow of world powers. Remember, the Gentiles now were ruling over Israel. They weren't independent like God promised. They didn't have their kingdom. And so the Lord says, I'm going to shake, shake things up. I'm going to shake up the heavens and the earth in this future day. And the world powers will come crashing down and Israel will be... Lifted high. It continues in verse 22 by, by specifying what this will look like. It will involve Gentile power's demise and Israel's preeminence. Take a look at verse 21. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother." In addition to these promises, as we move into verses uh, 23 and 24, God is going to take this man whose name was Zerubbabel, and he's going to make him, more specifically, one of his descendants, a promise. A promise that there will be a coming kingdom to rule, and a coming king from David's line, of which Zerubbabel was a part, and that this king would be like— he uses an image that would be very uh, understandable in in that day. He says, Zerubbabel, you're going to be like a a signet ring. And in those days, a signet ring was given uh, by a king to uh, someone underneath, and that then person would go kind of as an emissary to exercise kingly authority— over his providences. So he says, Zerubbabel, there will be one like you from your line, a descendant of yours in the future, and he will be on the earth in this kingdom, my signet ring. He will exercise my authority in all of the earth. Let's take a look at verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So friends, let me ask you a quick question. Who is this coming king that will rule over a revived and refined Israel and will sit on David's throne? What's the Sunday school answer? Five Jesus, right? Five, five letters, J-E-S-U-S. Yes, it culminates in the person of Jesus. Dr. Uh, Dr. Chisholm explains it this way. Take a look on the screen behind me. The words of Haggai 2, verses 21 through 23, though spoken directly to Zerubbabel were not fulfilled in his day. Zerubbabel, a descendant of David and governor of Judah, was the official representative of the Davidic dynasty in the post-exilic community at that time. As such, the prophecy of the future exaltation of the Davidic throne was attached to his person. As with the temple promised earlier in the chapter, Haggai related an eschatological reality, that is something that's going to happen in the future, to a tangible historical entity, that is the person of Zerubbabel, to assure his contemporaries that God had great plans for his people. Zerubbabel was, as it were, the visible guarantee of a glorious future for the house of David. And of course, in the progress of revelation and history, Jesus Christ fulfills Haggai's prophecy. So God closes the message uh, of Haggai, the book of Haggai, not only by encouraging his people with a prosperous present, by, but by helping them look to, to the future, to the way distant future, saying you will once again have a prevailing future under a Davidic king who we know as Jesus. Well, Haggai ends with a promise of a prevailing future. And that's how we're going to end our service today. With a promise of a prevailing future for you and I, as we remember the work of Christ in communion. You know, in communion, we do three things. First of all, we remember, right? It is an ordinance of remembrance. We remember that Jesus died on the cross for us, that his body, like the bread, was broken, and that his uh, blood, like this juice, was shed for us. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 25, Paul tells us this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he, he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in what? In remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. So when we come to the table, we do so to remember. We have a, a tangible, physical Object lesson that we are reminded that Jesus' flesh was torn apart and that his blood was spilt for us. But not only do we remember, but we actually proclaim something, we proclaim his death for us. And we invite anyone who's never trusted in Jesus Christ, never trusted in this good news, this gospel, that Jesus lived perfectly in obedience to God when you never could. And he died in your place, taking your sins, God's wrath that you and I deserve, and that he rose victorious to eternal life, and that he offers that eternal life to anyone who would believe, to anyone who would receive, to anyone who would trust in him. Verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, friends, we remember when we come to the table, but we also proclaim. This is a a picture of proclamation, and it's an invitation that if you've never trusted in Christ, friend, now, now is the time for you to do that. Third, we not only remember, we not only proclaim, but we anticipate. We anticipate his return. We anticipate Jesus Christ coming back for his people to establish his kingdom, raising us from the dead so that we too might share in this prevailing future. Notice verse 26, Paul says again, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes, until he comes again. So we remember, we proclaim, but we also anticipate. As we come to the table, we long for the day, We long for the day that Jesus Christ will share in the elements with us anew in his kingdom. In fact, Jesus told us this. He told his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, we anticipate that. When we come to the table, we remember there's going to be a day in the kingdom of Christ when we raise a cup and we're going to raise it with Jesus. And when we take the bread and we eat it, we're going to eat it with Jesus. So we anticipate his coming. So, friends, if you are here today and you are a Christian, you've placed your faith in Jesus, take time to remember. Take time to anticipate his return. Pray and examine. Confess your sins. And come to the table when you are ready. And leave quietly when you're done. But if you are here today and you know that you've never trusted Jesus personally, then please abstain for the purpose of this meeting. Watch. See the picture of the gospel in the elements before your eyes. Repent and trust in Christ, and become a Christian today. I'm going to pray, and the music will start, and I invite you to come as you're prepared. So let's